You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. So good evening, everyone, and thanks for coming out um, after a long day of work uh, to uh, this uh, uh, teacher's workshop. And uh, thanks especially for coming to hear my presentation on uh, the global Cold War in Washington State. I'd like to also thank all the organizers, both here at the University of Washington, at the Ellison Center, uh, Ryan Houck, and uh, it's good to see so many uh, people here. So, um, my presentation is going to take us from, in a way, from um, international relations and uh, mutual perceptions of the so-called enemies during the Cold War uh, to Washington State, although, as you'll see, um, my presentation also, as the name suggests, has a global focus. So today, uh, I want to examine three main questions. What was the Cold War? Uh, what did it mean for Washington State? And how, in turn, did Washington State shape the Cold War? As uh, I probably don't need to say, these are huge questions. Uh, just one of them would be uh, enough for a, a several-day presentation. So I am by no means going to answer all of these questions definitively, of course. Uh, just a disclaimer to, th to throw out there here at the beginning. What I'm going to try to do is to suggest ways of framing these questions, suggest sources for exploring these questions, suggest perhaps ways of teaching uh, and thinking about uh, these, um, these issues. So along the way, can everybody see? Uh, along the way, uh, we'll examine three main ways of thinking about the Cold War. Um, a, a concept that Professor Campbell um, introduced in her presentation. Uh, we'll look at it just as a period in 20th century history, stretching at least from 1946 to 1991. The beginning and end points are contested by scholars and, and by lay people. Uh, we'll look at it as an ideological, military, cultural, economic, and political conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union and their respective allies. And then lastly, uh, we'll look at it as a neo-colonial rivalry uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union and their allies uh, for global influence in the third world. And as we examine each way of thinking about the Cold War, uh, we'll relate each to Washington State. So let's move uh, from, on the, on the one hand, uh, the global Cold War as a period in 20th century history in general, and, uh, and then think about some issues uh, concerning this way of understanding the Cold War uh, for Washington State. So as we all know, the Cold War was a period in 20th century international history, and that's more or less the way many of my students seem to understand it when they walk into my class on the Cold War. 
uh, this way of thinking about the Cold War uh, and the events that you see represented here, uh, such as, oops, that's not what I wanted to do, such as the Korean Missile, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis here, uh, the Korean War here, fallout shelter, connection to Elena's presentation, uh, the Berlin Wall, among other uh, images, uh, is this uh, slide is meant to represent uh, the, Cold, the Cold War as a kind of succession of major events in the second half of the 20th century. And hence, uh, when understood as a kind of period, an undifferentiated, undifferentiated period in the history of the, the 20th century, the Cold War is, becomes a kind of adjective or descriptive phrase, as in Cold War music or the even more amorphous Cold War anxieties. So in this usage, Cold War means anything produced roughly in the second half of the 20th century. Treating it as a period of history raises questions to which students have often not given much thought. When exactly did this period begin and end, and why? How does the answer to that question depend on how we understand the Cold War? That is, why it occurred, what it was about, and why it ended or at least morphed into a new phase. Moreover, the answer might depend on the vantage point from which the questions posed and answered. That is, the Cold War's chronological boundaries might not be the same for each of the United States, at least in people's subjective experience of the beginning, middle, and end of the Cold War. So let's now move from the global Cold War as a period in 20th century history and start to think about what this might mean for Washington State. Here with a, uh, an image of the casualties and, and other harm to be produced by a nuclear attack. Uh, the, the threat of, of a nuclear attack, the states, not just Puget Sounds, but the states uh, perceived and real vulnerability to nuclear attack is a theme that's going to run throughout um, my presentation uh, today. So keeping this, this image in mind, how is the Cold War as a period of international history to be made meaningful to the history of Washington State and vice versa? Were there specific sub-periods to the Cold War history of Washington State? Are they the same as that of the Cold War nationally or globally? And if not, why not? As we'll see in just a few minutes, the Red Scare, the fear of communist infiltration of American institutions and societies that was such an important part of American and also Washington State and University of Washington political life in the 1950s uh, started earlier in Washington State than it did on a national level. So I would say that to help our students understand the Cold War and its significance for Washington State, 
We need to push them to think of the Cold War other than as a period in 20th century international history. This is where we begin, but we want to move on, I think, to something else. So this brings us to the second major way of understanding the Cold War, namely as uh, a global conflict whose dimensions were ideological, cultural, economic, and political, and involved the United States and the Soviet Union. This east-west divide that's inherent in the definition that I gave is probably familiar to many high school students and community college students, and is, is certainly familiar to the students that I get in my classes. When they think of the Cold War, they especially think of Europe um, and a divided Europe. And the colors uh, that you see in front of you, red appropriately for the Soviet Union, blue for some reason for the West, uh, uh, work nicely to um, emphasize uh, that, that world divided. But as you, uh, Professor Campbell emphasized, the Cold War was not just a military or political or ideological conflict, it was a cultural conflict. Um, and Professor Campbell uh, mentioned some American and Soviet movies of the Cold War, Red Dawn, uh, and uh, Tass, what was it, Tass uh, Declare, which was is authorized to speak. Is, is authorized to speak. I can also remember that after, tell you that after I took a semester of Russian at Berkeley in graduate school, I saw Moscow on the Hudson with Robin Williams, and I was so excited because I could understand a few phrases, so it was a really exciting moment. He goes into a, by the way, he goes into a, a, a grocery store in New York, and he, he is so overwhelmed by the amount of choice that he has a panic attack and starts hyper, hyperventilating. So that, that, that scene can be pretty useful, I think, for demonstrating um, to your students something about American perceptions of Soviet life, which were totally far off. But here you see some of the major, major films of, of uh, American cinema during the Cold War. Uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove, or How I uh, Stopped Worrying and Started to Love the Bomb, that I'll refer to a little bit later. Uh, the, the Manchurian Candidate, The Spy Who Came In from the Cold, 13 Days About the Cuban Missile Crisis, based on Robert F. Kennedy's uh, memoir uh, of the crisis. And in terms of relating this to, to Washington State, it would be, wouldn't it be particularly interesting for our students to research how Washington State residents, in particular, uh, received these Cold War films, what they thought about them. Uh, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Stopped Worrying and Started to Love the Bomb, a film of, uh, based in part on uh, nuclear anxieties generated by the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, would be a fascinating case study given the Hanford, the existence of the Hanford nuclear facility in the state and the region's proximity to the Soviet Union compared to the other lower 48 states. The Cold War, uh, as uh, an ideological, military, cultural, economic, and political conflict between the 
U.S. and the USSR uh, also uh, involved, in particular, ideological conflict. And within that, which took many dimensions, uh, the fear on both sides that there were communists who had infiltrated American society and politics, including the State Department, um, and that there were American spies who had um, infiltrated uh, the intelligence services of the Soviet Union, as was definitely the case. One of the, one of the major spies, for example, uh, uh, Oleg Pinkowski was kicked out of uh, Soviet military intelligence during uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. So there was a hunt for communists in the United States, uh, not only uh, those who had infiltrated American society, uh, but even its political and security institutions. Uh, this was epitomized by Senator Joseph McCarthy's launch in 1950 of the hunt for members of the Communist Party who were said to work in the State Department. Supposedly there were 205 of them or so and the larger paranoia about communist uh, penetration. So turning to Washington State, one of the best examples of the hunt for communists in Washington State is the 1948 to 1949 Canwell Committee, or the, quote, Interim Committee on Un-American Activities, unquote. This infamous episode in Washington state history is well documented in the Glasnost and Goodwill exhibit as the image to the right. This is a, a photo of uh, one of the panels from the, the exhibit uh, demonstrates. On July 1st, 1948, with a call for keeping quote unquote proper dignity the Canwell hearings on the presence of communists at the University of Washington began. The university eventually sanctioned six tenured faculty members and fired three of them. Sadly or wonderfully, depending on one's ideological perspective, then and now, the Canwell Committee would become a model far beyond Washington State as other state legislatures and public universities sought to root out the Red Menace during the Red Scare. On the right here, on the left here, my right, your left, or the left of the panel, here you see Canwell in 1948 at the meetings of the Interim Committee on Un-American Activities. To help students understand the origins, process, and consequences of the Canwell Committee, they could be asked to research the 1998 play written by Mark Jenkins, who's a professor in the UW School of Drama, All Powers Necessary and Convenient. Jenkins crafted the play's title from the enabling legislation for Washington's, quote, Joint Legislative Fact-Finding Committee on Un-American Activities, unquote. And the play incorporated quite a bit of dialogue based on transcripts of the hearings. It was incredibly popular in 1998. Unfortunately, I haven't seen it. I do know Mark Jenkins. Uh, but it would be fascinating for students to research uh, the, me the, uh, the meaning that the play had uh, for perhaps friends and family uh, who saw it, in part to understand the lingering effects 
of the ideological witch hunts of the Cold War in Washington State. So an important uh, theme in this, or I, I would say building block of my presentation today, is Cold War military conflict and Washington State, which you see pictured uh, in this image, from, also from the exhibit, I think. Uh, and, uh, no city is safe from attack, and the distance between Seattle and Russia, in terms of the red lines, is probably the shortest of any distance between the United, uh, US city and the Soviet Union. Mercifully, though, the Cold War never became hot in Washington state. Nonetheless, what President Dwight D. Eisenhower warned of on January 17, 1961, the military-industrial complex or an interlocking, mutually reinforcing conglomerate of defense contractors and armed forces was a formidable presence in Washington state during the Cold War. The state's political economy was intimately tied to that military-industrial complex Boeing stood out among industries that had defense contracts. The other part of the military-industrial complex, the armed forces, was likewise prominent in Washington state during the Cold War. Not that, of course, Washington state was exceptional in this regard, but when one compares the landmass to the number of the state, to the number of really crucial um, military bases, and in turn the defense system surrounding those bases and other important facilities such as Hanford. Uh, one is really struck by the concentration of the military industrial complex in the state. Seattle alone had the Puget Sound Navy Yard, Fort Lewis, and the McCord Air Force Base. Spokane housed Fairchild Air Force Base and other defense sites as well. These military installations were defended by an array of weapons, anti-aircraft guns, interceptor fighter aircraft, and starting in 1954, Nike superpower missiles. Long-range raiders supported these defenses. I'm quoting here from a, a document about uh, Cold War defenses in Washington state. Nike missiles also defended the Hanford nuclear facility. And let me put a plug in at this point for my former graduate student's uh, prize winning, uh, numerous, won numerous prizes, book uh, uh, about Hanford, um, namely uh, comparing actually Hanford and similar facilities in the Soviet Union, Plutopia, uh, and the author is Kate Brown. The scale and importance of the Washington State military industrial complex stem from several factors. One was the state's geographical location. U.S. defense strategists speculated that a nuclear strike would come from the USSR over the Arctic into Washington state. Adding to the region's strategic importance was the presence of defense contractors such as Boeing, whose presence in the state predated the Cold War. 
In turn, the region's strategic prom prominence drew other defense industries to the state. Paradoxically, the fact that the state's economy was so tied to defense made it more, not less, safe during the Cold War, in the sense that Washington State was especially vulnerable to nuclear attack because of its military importance, coupled with its proximity to the Soviet Union. This is also a panel uh, from the Glasnost and Goodwill uh, exhibit. For this reason, residents of Washington State, especially those who lived in Seattle and, the, and Puget Sound, Spokane, and Hanford, worried a lot about nuclear strike, about a nuclear strike. Their feel, feelings of vulnerability to nuclear strike motivated them to prepare for catastrophe, as you see uh, pictured here. Feelings of vulnerability did not necessarily translate into a trained capacity of helplessness. Quite the opposite, in fact, was the case. Residents of Spokane in 1954 conducted the United States' first nuclear test evacuation called Operation Walkout in 1954, as I mentioned. 1954, by the way, was the year that, Ni that the Nike supersonic missiles began protecting Spokane's Fairchild Air Force Base and other crucial military and industrial sites in the state. So let's now look at pushback by Washington state citizens against the Cold War military conflict and in response to the heightened threat and real threat uh, to some extent of a nuclear strike in the state. So because of their heightened feelings of vulnerability to the existential threat of a nuclear strike, Washington State residents pushed back against the <coughs> nuclear arms race and pushed forward to end it in very impressive ways. In the 1970s and 1980s, for example, Seattle spawned peace movements such as Target Seattle, prevent, Preventing Nuclear War, in which Kay Bullitt had a very prominent uh, organizational role. If you go, or if your students would go to uh, the Glasnost and Goodwill exhibit, uh, you'll see uh, that in 1983, you'll see, three, see copies of the letter that uh, Seattle citizens wrote and delivered to citizens of Tashkent calling for peace. Uh, feelings of acute vulnerability to nuclear strike also likely played a role in generating sister city relationships throughout the state uh, between Seattle and Tashkent, Bellingham and Nakhodka, uh, and between Everett and Sovietskaya Gavin, to give just a few examples of the many sister city relationships between cities in Washington state and cities in the Soviet Union, including Central Asia. The Seattle-Tashkent Peace Park project uh, in 1988, also featured in the uh, Glasnost and Goodwill exhibit, was a milestone in that sister city relationship. Another response to fear of nuclear strike uh, was the people-to-people -people exchange, of which there were uh, many launched by citizens of Washington state. 
Uh, and this was an important example of citizen diplomacy, which I'll talk a little bit more about below. As citizens of Washington State developed ties with people in the Soviet Union, they were also motivated to help them in times of need. Visitors to the Glasses exhibit will see, for example, a section on humanitarian aid to Armenia after the earthquake of December of 1988. The centerpiece of the exhibit, the Goodwill Games, can be understood in part as a long-term product of human ties between the state and the USSR, ties that were generated in part by exceptionally acute feelings of vulnerability to nuclear strike here in Washington. So now eventually we'll get to a bit of a personal story, like Yelena, I too have a, <coughs> Professor Campbell, I also have a bit of a personal background for my interest in this. The Cold War, uh, as Professor Campbell uh, mentioned, uh, was a time of cultural conflict um, between East and West, light and dark, the Soviet Union and the United States. Because of the state's vulnerability to nuclear strike and the resulting prominence of its military industrial complex, Washington's residents' everyday life was infused with the cultural conflict of the Cold War. By this I have in mind not only the capitalist West and socialist East as opposed yet mutually constructing ways of life, the Cold War clash of civilizations, if you will. I'm also thinking of the role of culture, here understood as literature, art, cinema, radio, sports, and even leisure activities, through which people around the world, including in Washington State, created the webs of meaning through which they understood their own lives in relationship to the grand narratives of the Cold War. Education, too, was an important site of cultural conflict and cultural production during the Cold War. Given the region's strategic defense importance, it makes sense that Russian, Soviet, and East European studies, as well as area studies, more generally, would occupy a central place in the state's institutions of higher education during the Cold War, especially at the University of Washington. Academic institutions such as UW could also take advantage, by the way, of the linguistic, cultural, and historical expertise of Russian refugees, sometimes they called themselves immigrants, who came to the region in the 1920s and 1930s, often from the Russian Far East from and, and, and elsewhere in the Far East. An example is Vladimir Gross, who came to Seattle from Harbin in 1931 and was a popular instructor of Russian at UW during the Cold War. The 1949 emergence of the university's Department of Eastern and Slavic Languages, created by George Taylor and the predecessor of today's Jackson School, the very institution in which we're sitting right now, was an important component of, my, of what might be called the state's academic military industrial complex. My late colleague Herbert Ellison, who taught at the university throughout the Cold War, was in fact a pioneering figure in creating language programs for students in the USSR through the Council on International Educational Exchange, of which Tony and I are both veterans, 
and in the operations of the major academic exchange program with the USSR during the Cold War, in which I'm a veteran, um, and maybe others here are too, the International Research and Exchanges Board, or IREX. So as Professor Ellison's role in CIE and IREX suggests, Washington State's academic military industrial complex had significance, of course, far beyond the geographical borders of the state and the lives of its residents. In fact, as this uh, half of, an, of a letter envelope, a picture of half, a, half of a letter envelope suggests, I am one of the non-Washingtonians who benefited from it. In the summer of 1986, I participated in a Russian language program at Leningrad State University through the Council on International Educational Exchange. Although I was a PhD candidate in history at UC Berkeley, my core school, everybody see that there? My core school was the University of Washington. On the right of the slide, you see evidence of this, of this personal connection in this, to the academic, military, industrial complex of Washington <laughs> State, although I didn't think of it in those terms at the time. Uh, on this, uh, on uh, the envelope of this letter that I wrote to my parents in uh, the summer of 1986 uh, from Leningrad. The Cold War was a driving force of Washington State's economy. We've already seen one dimension of this, namely the robustness of the state's military industrial complex and the importance of industries such as Boeing, whose B-52 Stratofortress, for example, dropped bombs, lots of bombs, during the Vietnam War. But the role of the Cold War for Washington State went beyond the military-industrial complex and prominent industries such as Boeing. It included, for example, the joint fishing ventures with the USSR, the Marine Resources Company, that Tony Allison will talk about. In other words, the state's geographical location not only increased its residents' feelings of vulnerability to nuclear strike during the Cold War, but also provided them with opportunities to forge productive economic partnerships with the USSR. And then there were less well-known industries uh, in the state's Cold War economy. If you go to the Glasnost and Goodwill exhibit, for, for instance, you'll see a photograph, here it is, of a backyard bomb shelter priced $65, that was manufactured by Security Concrete Products in Renton. Not sure if they're still in business, but <laughs> it, it could be useful given some of the threats um, we currently face and the same geographic vulnerability to a different uh, source of them. So now let's import, move on to the important yet complicated subject of Cold War political conflict and Washington State. In particular, I want to focus on how Washington State politics decisively influenced the Cold War, as opposed to only being the recipient of political decisions made on the national and international level. 
The key case in point here is the Cold War political career of Washington State Democratic Senator Henry Scoop Jackson. You might have walked past his bust outside when you came into Thompson Hall tonight. Here he is, appropriately featured in the center of, of the image. The figure for whom the Jackson School is, of course, named. Given the importance of the state's military industrial academic complex, coupled with its vulnerability to Soviet nuclear attack, it makes sense that Washington State would have produced a national figure such as Scoop, who was fervently anti-Soviet and hawkish in American policy during the Cold War. Scoop's crowning, if controversial, achievement was the Jackson-Bannock Act of 1974 to 1975, passed in 1974, put into practice in 1975, which challenged the practice of detente launched by President Nixon. Sponsored by Jackson and Charles A. Bannock of Ohio in the House of Representatives, the act as federal law tied preferential trade act status to respect for human rights, especially the right to emigrate from non-market countries, such as, or any countries that had non-market economies, such as that of the USSR, Soviet bloc countries with the exception of Poland and Yugoslavia, as well as the People's Republic of China for a while, um, it had had that status, that is Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. Normal trade relations were denied to countries, in other words, with non-market eco uh, economies that limited emigration. The legislation's goal was to enable Jews and members of other religious minorities to leave the USSR and other countries of the Soviet bloc. So on the right here, I hope everybody can see that. On the right, you see the, an image of a type two Soviet visa allowing exit from the USSR and permanent residence elsewhere, resulting in the loss of Soviet citizenship. Scoop's passion for this legislation, by the way, stemmed not only from the influence of Washington's military industrial academic complex, but from the personal experience my colleagues who knew him tell me of having Jewish friends when he was growing up up the road in, Emer in Everett. As for the legislation's effect, in the initial aftermath of the legislation, the Soviet Union reduced exit visas. But over the long term, one million Soviet Jews emigrated to Israel. The second major example of Washington State's political influence on the course and outcome of the Cold War that I want to focus on this evening is citizen diplomacy, a central focus of the Glasnost and Goodwill exhibit. Citizen diplomacy is a term coined in 1981 by the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and writer David Hoffman, who in turn was writing about the physicist and citizen diplomat Robert Fuller. Robert Fuller, born in 1936, still alive as far as I know, was the former president, is the former president of Overland College, and he was a frequent traveler to the Soviet Union in the 1970s and 1980s uh, in his own efforts, as part of his own efforts to contribute to the end of the Cold War, or at least to nuclear disarmament. 
The concept of citizen diplomacy returns, refers to ordinary citizens who act as representatives of a country in relationship to foreign nations, either de facto, that is to say it wasn't their intent, they were athletes representing, say, the Soviet Union in the Olympics, or goodwill games, or out of conscious intent to do so. Its forms can include exchanges, whether scientific, cultural, artistic, or athletic. So when I was on the IREX exchange, although I did think of myself at the time, uh, I was a citizen diplomat. Uh, the Goodwill Games of 1990, held in Seattle and its environs, turned athletes into citizens diplomats, for example. As mentioned of Don Carlson's Citizen Summitry, the book that you see here, and mentioned there, indicates entitled Citizen Summitry, Keeping the Peace When It Matters Too Much to Be Left to Politicians, published in 1986. The citizen diplomacy movement in the United States stretched, stretched throughout the 1980s and accelerated with the increasing opportunities for foreign travel to the USSR created by Mikhail Gorbachev's reforms that began in 1980, around the same time. Citizen diplomats came from all 50 states, to be sure. But when one views the Glassdust and Goodwill exhibit and does some poking around in the scholarship on the subject, one gains the impression that, comparatively speaking, Washington State was an especially important generator of citizen diplomats. It just might have produced more citizen diplomats per capita than any other state. In any case, Washington State's citizen diplomat movement can be attributed, attributed, I would say, to the mutual influence of several factors. The prominence of the state's military-industrial academic complex, the region's perceived vulnerability to nuclear attack, and the leftist politics of many residents of Puget Sound. So let's now move on to the third way of thinking of the Cold War, namely as neocolonial colonial rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union and their respective allies for influence in the third world. The third, this third way of thinking about the Cold War, which isn't incompatible with the other two, uh, has been increasingly important in the last several decades. And, um, the, the most important scholar uh, in this regard is certainly Ode. His name, first name is pronounced, I think, in Norwegian, Ode, O-D-D, Arne Westad, or Vestad, W-E-S-T-A-D. -E Vestad has demonstrated in his widely, widely cited and tremendously influential book, The Global Cold War, the consequences for such neo-colonial rivalry in a decolonized Africa and other countries in the world, what he calls the Global South. So he uses the term Global South. Uh, the concept of third world that, we, that you see up here with the uh, yellow and blue lines, you see, you see the, is a, a concept that actually was generated in the beginning of the Cold War itself by a French journalist. As you can see from the image before you, the South is to some extent 
more an idea with territorial manifestations, I'm talking about the global south, than a strict division of the world into the northern and southern hemispheres. Parts of the northern hemisphere, such as Cuba and Mexico, parts of Mexico, uh, are in the northern hemisphere, while Australia and New Zealand, though located geographically in the south, are part of the north and the first world. This is no doubt going to be a little bit tricky uh, for students at first. Scholars haven't inserted the Cold War history of Washington State into this understanding of the Cold War as superpower rivalry for influence over the global south. Or one might say they haven't done so in a conscious way. So here goes a few very provisional and brief uh, thoughts about how to do this. In other words, what was the role of Washington State's academic, military, industrial complex in the global Cold War? If we understand the latter as a rivalry between the superpowers for neo-colonial influence in the global south and especially the third world. Washington State's military industrial academic complex and the global Cold War as a neo-colonial rivalry between superpowers for influence in the third world uh, is, is something that I'll illustrate uh, with two basic examples. The, the first being an, uh, one that is the, the region's kind of iconic defense contractor, Boeing. One of Boeing's major projects in the products in the Cold War was, as I mentioned, the B-52 Stratofortress. A bomber with a wingspan of 185 feet, a top speed of a 650 miles per hour, and a range of more than 10,000 miles, it made its first flight on April 15, 1952, during the Korean War. The turbofan-powered B-52H, the next and last version of the B-52, flew its maiden voyage on March 6, 1961. That is a little over a month um, before the Bay of Pigs invasion, about five months before the Berlin Wall went up, and about a year and a half before the Cuban Missile Crisis. The B-52 dropped many bombs in the Vietnam War, a classic yet tragic example of the neo-colonial rivalry between Cold War superpowers for influence in the global south and the third world. Here, you see Soviets inspecting the wreckage of a B-52 Stratofortress uh, near Hanoi in 1972 during the Vietnam War. So this is a somewhat obvious example of the connections I'm trying to make between the local and the global. Let's go to um, a less obvious example, at least an example that I did not know anything about until I started preparing for this talk. As a neo-colonial competition between superpowers, the Cold War was also a struggle for the heart and soul of mankind. Ideas and their practical application were weapons on the global Cold War battleground. Or flipping that around, the global Cold War was a battleground of ideas generated by competing ideologies, whether Marxism, Leninism, or liberal democracy. 
In this global context, the academic part of Washington State's military-industrial-academic complex generated global consequences. Of many possible examples, I want to focus on Project Revere, um, part of it who's, uh, one of whose products uh, you see uh, represented in yellow uh, before you. Project Revere was uh, a 1950s project based at UW, but funded by the CIA and the US Air Force to research the use of the information leaflet as a quote unquote flexible weapon for interpersonal communications and disseminating rumors. The UW scholars involved in the project, such as the late geographer Edward Ullman, uh, were aware of its applicability, though, in the global Cold War, especially in North Korea. Nonetheless, samples, leaflets, such as the one that you see here, were dropped uh, in Washington State, in Oregon, in Idaho, and Montana uh, to uh, get the research data that the project's crafters uh, wanted. So to conclude this section before proceeding to wrap up remarks, the military-industrial academic complex of Washington State made essential contributions to the United States' neo-colonial push for influence in the global south and the third world during the Cold War. Boeing's B-52 Stratofortress and other military weapons are but a few examples of the ways in which the economy and society of Washington State was linked to the Third World and the Global South during the Cold War. Product Project Revere is but one example of the productive synergies from the perspective of the US foreign policy and defense establishments of uh, the relationship between military, industrial, and especially the academic component of the conglomerate about which Eisenhower warned in 1961. Surely, but in ways we have yet to understand, Washington State not only acted upon the Global South during the Cold War, but also felt unanticipated effects of its contributions to neocolonial influence in the Cold War. It would be great if our students could be motivated to research this part of the story of Washington State in the, in the Global Cold War. So let me just conclude um, with, um, some final remarks. So I've placed the three ways in which scholars and ordinary citizens have understood the Cold War as a period in 20th century history, uh, as a multifaceted conflict that mercifully never became hotter than it did, and as a global stru struggle between superpowers for influence in the third world in relationship to the politics, economic, society, and culture of Washington State during the Cold War. Painting with very broad brushstrokes, I've suggested that the significance of the state's military-industrial-academic conflict in the, in, in the United States and around the world, I've suggested that that significance uh, was quite great. and. Uh, still, I think, has not been fully appreciated by scholars. Washington State made a central contribution to the Cold War as a global conflict, including uh, in the sense of the Cold War as a struggle between 
uh, superpowers for neo-colonial influence in the global south. Its military-industrial complex was crucial to the U.S.'s waging of a struggle whose proxy wars raged around the globe. Connected to that military-industrial complex was a major research university, the University of Washington, whose, factor, whose faculty across departments and units uh, generated research tools to quote-unquote know the enemy, to invoke uh, the title of David Engerman's book about the academic study of the Soviet Union uh, in the United States during the Cold War, and to win the struggle, as Melvin Leffler has put it, uh, for the soul of mankind. Uh, and uh, I hope uh, that the ways in which, let me end by saying that I hope that the ways in which uh, Washington State residents pushed back uh, against uh, the dominance of the military, industrial, academic complex, and the ways in which they pushed forward to peace uh, will be an inspiration to students and to all of us as uh, we live in increasingly dangerous times. Thank you, Professor.